0: 2 Corinthians 9.6 Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Father, we come before you thankful this morning. Thankful for life. And thankful for breath. And thankful, Lord, for relationships and for family and for friendships. We're thankful, truly, Father, for the beauty of this earth that you created. We're thankful, Lord, for the experience that you have given us in this world, but especially we are thankful for Jesus. So thankful, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world and loved us straight to the cross. Thankful that you broke the chains of sin and death. Thankful that you rose and thankful you call us to new life and life everlasting. And it is with thanksgiving that we turn to your word this morning. We are thankful for your word and we pray that you would bless us now with understanding, Father, and and truly motivation of heart to hear your heart. Holy Spirit, we ask you to teach us in Jesus' name, amen. So the passage is perfect. Sowing and reaping and bread and harvest. I love it. Perfect timing for the week of Thanksgiving. And I do have many things to be thankful for this year, not the least of which happened at 428 a.m. Thursday, November 17th, when Silas Nathaniel Donor was born. I'm an official grandpa. And Bill is an official great-grandpa. He's been trying to be great all his life, and he's finally gotten there. <laughs> Cheryl flew back the next day immediately, and so she is back. Oh, there he is. Could there be a more perfect child? <laughs> Who got that picture? He did. Yep, there he is, Silas Nathaniel. So Silas, what a cool name! I could spend the whole morning talking about the biblical significance of my grandson. I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But I am thankful. I love Thanksgiving. If you've been around here, you know that. Every year we come to this time, and and I typically spend a a few minutes waxing eloquent about Thanksgiving and and how it is my favorite of all holidays. It's it's one of the least touched by culture. It's one of the the most genuine, I feel, uh, among the holidays. And I'm not talking about the food, but but the, the whole impetus behind it. The whole reason that we stop, but still, our nation, whether people realize it or not, it is the most holy holiday of our national calendar. Our nation pauses to recognize God. I love it. I remember the second Thanksgiving when we had moved into our home. It was the second year, and, and Bill and Sharon invited some special guests to join us for Thanksgiving that year. There's a couple they met in a trailer park, actually. I kid you not, for about, how many months was it, Bill? Was it 11, 12 months? It was almost a full year. Yeah, that, that Bill and Sharon lived in the North Whidbey trailer park while we were building our house. Gutsy. And stayed married, so that was a good thing. They met a couple there, Tony and Yolanda Burns and uh, struck up a friendship. Tony and Yolanda were doing the exact same thing. They were building a house on some other property on Whidbey Island. And so the, the two couples met and struck up a great friendship that lasted far beyond the trailer park. And so they invited Tony and Yolanda over for Thanksgiving that second year. Sharon told Yolanda, I want you just to bring a traditional Thanksgiving dish, and she did. Now, I love everything about Thanksgiving. I do have uh, very definite feelings about the food. There are particular dishes that must be in Turkey, obviously, cranberry sauce, stuffing, mashed potatoes, yams, pumpkin pie. Bill's got this, this stuffing that he makes that is fantastic. And you got to have these things. And really, the more starch, the better, as far as I'm concerned, for a, for a happy Thanksgiving. And that's traditional. Sharon told Yolanda to bring a traditional dish. Well, Yolanda was Hispanic. She brought enchiladas. Now, I like enchiladas, don't get me wrong. I'm good with Mexican food, absolutely, but just not with marshmallow yams. I mean, you're putting the two on the same plate just doesn't work, and some this morning may feel like talking about giving. Money talk at church is the same thing, like mixing enchiladas and cranberry sauce. Why do we have to do that? It just makes me cringe, you know? There's often often an unwelcome guest, or at least an unwelcome dish on the table, whenever tithes are the topic and economics are the emphasis. I remember a church that I previously served at, every year, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, we had the thank offering. And it was a big deal because it was a big fundraising drive for whatever the need was around the church that year to get some extra bucks in the till. And so they would really press it and the bags would be passed two, three, sometimes four times because we had to drive for that thank offering. And you know what happened? It was the Sunday no one invited friends because no one wanted to because we all felt coerced and, 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 you know, the money topic. People don't like it i come to the conclusion that it really shouldn't be that way. I think perhaps we've missed the point and the purpose of giving. As far as Jesus was, as far as Jesus is concerned, the giving is already baked in to the thanks. Well, I can, I can offer thanksgiving without giving, Rick. I know you can. Understand this morning that the giving is the issue. And, and, and the revelation of the thanks. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You can say you love someone, you love something, but if your treasure doesn't go there, is it true? Does it truly reveal what's going on? Where your heart is, think about that. Where your heart is, there's joy. Right? Desire. Enthusiasm. If your heart's in in that place or or for that person. Where your heart is. Jesus says where your treasure is there your heart will be. Where your treasure is there your joy will be. Your enthusiasm, your desire, your passion. What matters to you. And yet, we bring up giving and it's just an enchilada on the church plate. Again, no offense, I like enchiladas. But you, you get what I'm trying to say here? Thanksgiving is a big deal to God. In fact, He trains His people early on in the whole concept of thanksgiving. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 14, and I'll just read this to you if you don't want to turn there. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22, the Lord says, You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow which comes out of your field every year. Tithe is 10%. And the Lord was emphatic with Israel. The first 10% of what comes out of the fields, the Lord said, you bring it to me. You bring it to the temple. But, but listen. He says, you shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where He chooses to establish His name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. He says, if the distance is so great for you that you're not able to bring the tithe... Since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set His name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, well, then you shall exchange it for money and bind the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Ultimately, that would be the temple in Jerusalem. And He says, you may spend the money for whatever, listen, whatever your heart desires. For oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household you also shall not neglect the Levite who is in your town for he has no portion or inheritance among you man if that's not a Thanksgiving dinner I don't know what is God said, I want you every year to bring the first fruits offering, the first fruits tithe, bring it to the temple, bring it to the place of my name, and I want you to have a massive picnic. A Thanksgiving day. God said, eat at my house. We're having Thanksgiving at my house today. And all the people were invited to come. Man, it was over the river and through the woods to the house of the Lord we go. And they did. Why was this so important to God? Well, partially because He just loves to watch His kids celebrate. He loves to see them enjoy His blessings and His presence. Along with the many feasts and festivals that went on in Israel every year, the Jewish people could also, anytime they wanted, they could bring a thank offering to the Lord. All this... Because God knows what thanksgiving does to a human heart. And that's what I want to encourage you to think about this morning. So often the topic of giving is about that coercion or about that trying to push people to put more in the offering box or in the bag as it comes around. That's not the emphasis this morning. You decide to do that, great. That's between you and the Lord. But what does it do to you? That's what I think sometimes we miss or don't consider. What does giving do to me? I am so thankful that here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul doesn't pull any punches. I mean, he gets to the heart of this turkey. (laughs) He gets to the heart of giving. I realize something. We've been, as we've studied through this, talking the last few weeks about the two primary reasons Paul sent this letter. The personal reason and the practical reason. And the personal reason you read about in chapters 6 and 7, where Paul talks about, man, we've given you our heart, open your heart to us. It's all open-heartedness and love and affection, and and it's very personal. And you go through those two chapters, marvelous. Then you come to chapter 8. And as I taught Wednesday, this is the practical reason. Because in chapters 8 and 9, Paul starts to call the people back to their giving. Chapter 6 and 7, personal, open your hearts. Chapters 8 and 9, practical, open your wallets. And that's the way I've viewed this, but that may be too simplistic here. Because in reality, the practical is personal. And the personal is practical. The open-hearted give. And giving opens the heart. Let me say that again. The open-hearted give. Give. And I'm talking about money because Paul is very t- clearly talking about money, cash, dollar runos, shekels. He is talking about these things in chapters 8 and 9. So understand, when I say giving this morning, we are talking about money. We're not talking about time, energy, effort, focus, all those other things. People say, well, I tithe off of that. That's fine. We're talking about money. And it is the open-hearted who give, and it is giving that opens the heart, It functions to do that in the human life. The church at Corinth had freely committed, a year before Paul sent this letter, to contribute in a big way to a church-wide relief effort. That was Paul's third missionary journey. And if we've looked at this, he traveled all throughout Galatia and Asia up to Macedonia, down into Achaia, which is where Corinth was, southern Greece. He traveled all the way around there, Seeking contributions, collecting money for the Jerusalem and Judean churches. A relief effort because of the difficulty, the struggles that were going on in Jerusalem. So that's practical, right? The practical reason for the letter. Hey, Corinth, make good on your promises to give or come in to collect what you said you were going to do. Practical. But the more I think about it, the more personal you see that thankful giving really is. So, in the serving before us this morning, let's consider that. I want to point out four things that we see that will help us understand this concept more clearly. And the first one is simply this, God's economy. God's economy. Look at verse 6. Now this I say... Uh, stop right there just for a minute. The phrase, this I say day in the Greek indicates that what follows is a well-established principle. Okay, It's a phrase used in the Greek that means, you know this, and then you share what the people know. This is not new information, he's just underscoring what is understood. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This is not new information. Everybody knows that. So sparingly, you're not going to get much back. But if you sow bountifully, you'll get a lot back. That's the way it works. And it reads like a proverb. Indeed, it has this proverbial ring to it. Is it a proverb? Well, you can find a very similar proverb in the Bible. Proverbs 11.24. This says, there is one who scatters and yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is due, and yet it only results in want. The generous man will be prosperous, and he who waters will himself be watered or refreshed. And so that concept is there. The physical law of sowing, of watering. And you know if you sow much, you will reap much. And if you sow little, you will reap little. And so it's a very clear concept. In fact, you could say the sower, the farmer, can't afford to be sparing when he casts the seed. Especially back in these days, when the sowing was literal, they'd take that bag and go out into the field and they would literally cast the seed. They couldn't be sparing. You couldn't afford to be. Because the more you sow, the more you harvest. Jesus put it in a way that I had never thought about before. I heard this recently in the parable of the sower and the soils when he talks about the sower goes out to sow and, and the, the seed is the word of God and he sows on these four different kinds of soils Matthew 13 Mark 4 Luke 8 but think about this in this parable the seed only flourished in one out of four soils you could say you have about a one in four chance of bringing someone to the Lord by sowing the word of God one out of four, according to the parable, is going to have an open heart to receive the seed of the Word of God. Sow bountifully. When it comes to God's Word, don't just sow in one or two or three lives. Sow everywhere. Because even sowing everywhere is going to yield one out of four. Sow bountifully. The more you sow, the more you harvest. But Jesus is talking about in his parable of the sower and the soils, he's also talking about the heart, right? He's talking about that rocky heart or the thorny heart or the hard pan heart. He's talking about the heart with the weeds and he's talking about the heart that has good soil. And so we understand and what Paul's getting at here is that the physical law is a spiritual law as well. Just as bountiful sowing will bring bountiful harvest, so it is with the heart. Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whenever a man sows this, he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh corruption. Why is that? Because the flesh is corrupt and will die. So the more you sow into this life, into this temporary dwelling the more corrupt it's going to become because eventually it dies off. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, just as there's a direct correlation between what you give and what you get, there's also a direct correlation between how much you give and how much you get. Still talking about money. If you are a stingy sower, you will get stingy results. If you give bountifully, your life will be bountiful as well. So, Rick, you're saying if, if I pour money into the church, I'll get lots of money back? Not necessarily. I'm saying, though, if you sow bountifully, if you pour in, yes, financially, your life will be bountiful in ways you cannot even imagine. And God knows how to bless. This is the only law, by the way, in the Bible, which God adds a challenge to. He says in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. So that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Cheryl is in Wisconsin. I'm here at home. And Thanksgiving is Thursday. That's a problem. She's not coming back until Saturday. Bigger problem. I've carved the turkey every year. I haven't cooked a turkey in my life. Now, thankfully, my father-in-law knows how to cook turkey, so we're good there. But we've been talking about over the last few days, and, and we'll be talking more today, about the grocery list. Okay, what do we need? What do we have to do? What do we have to get? I mean, it's just, and I am panicking because the yams have to be there, man. And the stuffing must be on the table. Bill bought the cranberry sauce yesterday. Yes! No enchiladas. I'm very excited. <laughs> But it's funny, I'm going through my mind, I'm going through this checklist, you know, what do we have to have to make sure what? That there's plenty on the table. That there's a a bounty on the table. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. What would it be if I was the only one cooking and the kids walked upstairs on Thanksgiving morning and there it was, Dad's making the the feast of macaroni and cheese? (laughs) Dig in, kids. (laughs) Bring the whole time. So there may be food in my house, he says. And see if I won't open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you blessing until it overflows. Now, I'm not telling you that. God is. Test me. And then he also adds this, which I love. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you. So that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts. How does that apply now? Well, maybe the flat tire you were going to get doesn't happen. Maybe the expense energy-wise in your household isn't what you thought it was going to be. Maybe the bill that you thought was coming in never arrives. I don't know, but God says, If you will trust Me, if you will test Me, I'll show you not only will I be bountiful to you, but I will protect you against the devourer. And that means there are things that would devour even your income that God's going to keep from happening. And you'll never know. You'll never see that. You'll just not be in places that you might have been otherwise. And again, God says this to Israel, test me now in this. Now, please hear my heart. I am not trying to convince people to tithe to church today. I'm not trying to convince you to shift into this 10% mentality. I think it's a great idea. And I've said that before. I think it's a beautiful starting point. For people of faith to really trust the Lord. Just give 10%, let it go man, and trust that he's going to provide for you. It's more about trust than anything else. Someone might be thinking, Rick, it's been a low giving month. Is that what's going on here? I share with everybody, just so you know, that October was a record-breaking giving month at the Bridge Fellowship. So that has nothing to do with this. But it also has nothing to do with the tithe. In fact, the problem in the church today is not the tithe. The problem problem is just plain old giving. It's giving anything. It's trusting the Lord with money that I feel like I've got to hold on to. You see, there is a mentality among us. It's a very human mentality, so completely understood. But related to giving, we think that by storing up, that by holding back, we can protect ourselves against financial hardship. I'm going to make sure it's here rather than there. Because here, I can control. There, (laughs) I have to trust God to control. And I'm not sure He's up to it. And so we hold back. And we don't give. It, It kind of like, well, it reminds me of a parable. Luke chapter 12, verse 16. Jesus says, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? He said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, and I'll build larger barns. And and there I will store all my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you And who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God's economy is different than man's economy. Because God's economy requires trust. Calls out faith in His people. God's economy says, you're just going to have to believe that I'll take care of you. Bring the tithe to the storehouse and believe me. Trust me. I have said this for 13 years and Lord willing I'll say it for 13 more. That the tithe and offering and giving in church is about faith. It is about faith. Not my faith in you. Your faith in God. My faith in the Lord. Our trust. It's why we give in the blind. It's why we don't have congregational voting over financial decisions because that's not the point. The point is that we give it to the Lord, we let it go to the Lord, and we trust that the Lord is going to care for the needs of our personal lives because He said He would. He promised to do so. God's economy. And if you feel again like I'm sneaking a little hot sauce into your candied yams, just listen. Don't want to give? Prefer to... Hold it back. Don't believe that you can start giving, much less tithing? Okay. That's okay. I I won't know any different. You know, our church leadership won't know whether you're giving or not. That's alright, but understand that you are denying yourself the blessing. You are denying yourself entrance into divine economics. God's economy. Verse 7. Each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. Because compulsory offerings steal the blessing of generosity. When I'm forced to give, okay, I I might do it under duress, but I'm not going to enjoy it. But when I give because I have determined to do so in my heart to the Lord, I have decided I'm just going to trust God with this and move forward in it. Wow, <laughs> It's marvelous. It's joyful. It is a blessing to the heart. Well, if compulsory offerings steal the blessing of generosity, then why did God compel Israel to do it? It was part of Torah law. The tithe And all the offerings of Israel, which actually came up to about 23%, not 10%, why did God require it of them if it steals the joy and the blessing? Very simple. The Torah law, the the Hebrew Scriptures, my friends, are teaching tools. The whole of the Old Testament and God's work in and with and through Israel is a matter of teaching. That's why the New Testament doesn't demand or designate specific amounts in our giving. Because once we're trained, it's unnecessary. Once you understand the, the process and the purpose, once you get that, then you don't have to start. Once you see through the example of Israel and the commands of the Hebrew Scriptures, the beauty and value of the tithe, you don't need to repeat that in the New Testament. Just do this, but do this because you've chosen to. The New Testament brings us in grace. And freedom and Jesus, Galatians 3.24 says, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. But after that, faith has come. We're no longer under a schoolmaster or a tutor. God was tutoring His children, teaching His children and us by extension what giving was like, how to give, how to trust Him in that. And so He set the tithe and it was compulsory. But not anymore. Not anymore. By now, the giving, well hopefully the giving would already be deeply ingrained, as I said, baked into the thanks. The thanksgiving. And so, Paul says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Point number two, God's economy is number one, God's hilarity. God's hilarity. You Bible students know God loves a cheerful giver. The word cheerful is hilaros in the Greek. It is where we get our word hilarious or hilary. <laughs> I'm not even going to go there. Hilaros. Because giving is not supposed to be grudging, giving is not supposed to be a burden or a stressor or even a sense of, of divine duty. No, giving is supposed to be a joy, a a happiness. And if you don't give joyfully, you don't get that. And I'm just speaking truth to you all, if if giving is a a strain, then you miss the whole point. If, If the idea of giving, perhaps you don't give, and the idea just freaks you out, stresses you out. Or maybe you give some, but the idea of increasing that, you just can't even imagine, understand. That's the flesh. The flesh rejects the idea of giving completely. The flesh says receiving is where where it's at. Holding on is where it's at. Getting and keeping, that's the good part. That's your flesh. I'm just telling you. That is the natural man. That's the natural woman saying, I've got to hold on. And yet, Paul said, Acts chapter 20, verse 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Consider those words, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That means it's not, it's a better thing to give than to receive. No, it's more blessed. You are more blessed in giving than in receiving. Where did Jesus say that, by the way? We we read that verse, that was Acts chapter 20, verse 35. Where did Jesus actually say that in one of the Gospels? It's not there. You will not find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, Jesus specifically, He says other things similar, but specifically saying it is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, well, if it's not in the Gospel. Hey, it's in the Bible. It is in the inspired Word of God. Do you understand that the book of Acts is the inspired Word of God, right? And so as things happen in Acts, and as things are written and shared in Acts, if we hear in Acts that Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive, we know He said it. Because it's in God's holy, inspired, and divine Word. And besides, I love what what John wrote, John twenty-one, twenty-five. there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written within. So I'm thankful in the book of Acts that Luke recorded Paul quoting Jesus, saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because that's coming from Jesus. Those are His words. And giving is blessing. Hilarious, joyful, heartwarming blessing. On occasion I detect a woohoo hoo when someone gives in the back. I'm not sure who it is. It's a little crazy, a little hilarious. Are you understanding a little bit why God wants us to give? Let me give you some more info on this. What He's doing. In drawing us into this pattern, into this behavior of giving, is he is breaking the miserly shell of the natural man or woman. He's breaking into our hearts. That's really what this is all about. D.L. Moody told a, a, a great story. He said there was once a farmer. He was a converted miser to whom a neighbor in distress appealed for help. And the farmer decided to prove the genuineness of his conversion by giving his neighbor a ham. On his way to get it, the devil appeared, whispering, Give him the smallest one you got. A struggle ensued. And finally, the one-time miser took down the biggest ham he had, and the devil said, You are a fool! At this, the farmer replied, If you don't keep still, I'll give him every ham in the smokehouse. (laughs) By the way... The best thing to do, don't have to do it, I'm just saying. The best thing to do if you find yourself struggling to give is ham it up. Ham it up, man. Go hilarious. Increase the amount. Give more. Give hilariously. Give joyfully, ham it up. It will build up your faith and it will shut up the devil. Give hilariously. Verse 8. And God is able, see this is the beauty of it, God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed, as it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, someone might read that verse and say, okay, I'll give as soon as the abundance comes in. soon as God pours out, man, I'm planning on giving, I really am. I have it written in, you know, I'm going to start tithing just as soon as I see that increase. In fact, if God increases me 15%, I'll give 10%. If I get that kind of raise this year, yeah, I'll turn it around. That's not how faith works. God says, trust me. God says, I want you to put your feet in the Jordan first, and then I'll... Well, in that case stop the flow, but it, it's kind of the opposite. And trust me financially, and I will increase the flow. But you got to trust me first. That's the process he keeps drawing us back to: the process of faith, of actually believing I can't outgive God. You've heard that, I'm sure. You can't outgive God. How many people have heard that in a teaching or at church at some point in your life? Let me just see. Show how. Okay, you can't outgive God, and we all go, "Oh yeah, well, that's a great principle." Yeah. How many of us test him on that? When was the last time you took your entire paycheck and dropped it in an offering box at a church and said, "Okay, prove it"? Well, that's crazy. Yeah, it's kind of hilarious, isn't it? Are you telling me to do that, Rick? No, I'm telling you to, that's between you and God. I'm not asking for that or saying you should. I'm just saying you can't outgive Him, and He wants us to give because faith comes first. Trust me first. And see if I'm not gonna take care of you. Because when you do trust Him and He takes care of you, the end result is more faith. You just trust Him more. And you're more joyful. And when Thanksgiving comes around, you're just brimming with thanks of all kinds. And that's, by the way, number three, God's sufficiency. God's sufficiency, God's economy, God's hilarity, God's sufficiency. He says, all grace, all sufficiency for every good deed. And get this again, this sufficiency is heart changing. It's heart changing. This is God's purpose in the whole issue of giving. To change the heart. The word sufficiency is autarchia. And autarkia is a perfect condition of life in which no additional aid or support is needed. That's what the word means in Greek. Autarkia. It's also translated contentment. As Paul would later write, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, Godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by autarkia. Contentment. That condition of just... Perfect serenity and satisfaction in the sufficiency of the Lord. God's sufficiency develops godly satisfaction. And the truth is, the more generous we are, the more we recognize our generosity is supplied by Him. See, even as you give, you see that the the giving is flowing from Him. It's not even coming from you. You're just the vessel or the vehicle through which the giving is moving, and as it moves through you, you know what stays in your heart? Faith. And trust. And all the joy and blessing that comes with it. The more generous we are, the more content we are. In fact, I would tell you the most content people in the world are very generous givers. But it gets better. The spiritual impact of all this is deeply personal and it's permanent. Look at the end of that verse, verse 9. You may note there in your Bibles that it's a quote. He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Let me ask you, who is the subject? Who is the He in that quote? If you were just reading by it, you would assume it's God, right? He's the one who scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Of course, it's Jesus. It's God, right? Listen. The quote comes from Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness endures forever. Light arises in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious and compassionate and righteous. It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment. He will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He will not fear evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is upheld. He will not fear until he looks with satisfaction on his adversaries. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. The wicked will see it and will be vexed. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So when Paul wrote, just as it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He's talking about the person who trusts in God. Psalm 112 is the psalm of the righteous man. And that righteousness, you heard it in the middle, is key. It's a man who gives. It's a woman who who is generous. And and that concept, it affects us, it changes us, it alters us. Great contentment is realized in generous contribution. But it's not just a practical action. It's the personal heart change that takes place when we give i got to be honest with you all. I have never thought about it like that before. I have always only thought about giving. It's an action of faith and it's, it's, it's what I do unto the Lord. And, and yeah, I believe that it makes me more thankful. I didn't think about the fact that giving alters me. Changes my heart. Softens a heart that would otherwise be hard and self-protective. And that's the whole point Paul's making here. We don't give under compulsion. We give under contentment with all of God's sufficiency. And verse 10, now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for, I love it, all liberality. God is a liberal. God was the first liberal. That's number 4, God's liberality. I'm not talking politics. So those of you who are Democrats are going, "Yeah." And Republicans are going, "Oh." God's liberality. Let me give you the picture. It started out at the very beginning, Genesis 1 verse 11. God said, "Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed." and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their own kind with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. God's liberality. What's marvelous is God just, He didn't just plant a fruit tree. You know, those of you who get frustrated with the seeds (laughs) in the fruit... Why does there have to be seed there? Well, because we wouldn't have more fruit if there wasn't the seed. God, in His liberality, said, let's not only give them fruit, let's give them fruit that gives them fruit. Let's give them vegetables that give them vegetables. I'm going to create a world that is continual and sustaining. And by the way, I just read this this morning. Stephen Hawking has now put a timeline on the earth. We only have a thousand years left. Based on his scientific research. Which works. That's fine. A thousand years is all we need for the millennial kingdom. And then we'll have the new heaven and the new earth. Right? So I'm good with that. Thank you Stephen Hawking for proving my point. (laughs) But he's wrong. He's wrong. This earth will not go down until God determines. Because God is so powerful. We're not smart enough to destroy this planet. We may be dumb enough. God created this world to be self-sustaining and He is still involved in it. But it's marvelous to me from the very first day of creation and on after that, He created this liberal world, This, this world of great divine godly liberality where the fruit is there every season. The vegetation continues to grow. We continue to have all needs met in in this world. The only thing that goes against that, the reason why there's poverty in the world? Greed. The sin nature of humanity. But that's the Lord who is liberal with this fruitful, seed-packing, naturally productive creation. He made it this way. Listen, He made it this way because that is His heart. God is a giver. God is liberal. Isaiah 55 verse 10, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, what Paul says right here, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. It's even God's liberality that that brings us the Bible. That that we should have such riches and such such joy here and, and such fruitful study and understanding. He brings His Word into the world both written and living in Jesus the Word. He brings us His Word to enrich us so that we might enrich others and continue the scattering of the seed. To seed the Word of Christ in us so we might scatter abroad over the hearts of others. John 15, 16, Jesus said, Hey, you did not choose me. I chose you. And I appointed you so that you would go and bear fruit. And that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Bear fruit. Well, Rick, I thought you were talking about money. You kind of slipped off there over into the evangelistic side. No, I'm still talking about money. You ever think about your offering as a as a way of seeding the kingdom? That cash can actually be seed to cause the bearing of fruit? This entire teaching, God's economy, God's hilarity, God's sufficiency, his liberality, it's not just an incentive to give. In fact, Paul is not asking Corinth here to give anything more than what they already determined a year before that they were going to give. Paul already knew the number. He makes it clear that they had already committed extravagantly. And as we talked about Wednesday, that extravagant commitment had impacted the churches up in Macedonia who were far more impoverished than Corinth. And they gave huge amounts because they were so excited by what they heard Corinth was going to do. And Paul now comes back to Corinth and says, hey, what you guys said you're going to give, we're coming to collect it. Be sure you have it ready. He's not trying to get them to dig deeper or give more than what they committed. He just wants them to give what they committed. And, And here's the thing about... 2 Corinthians 9. When we read it and study it simply as an incentive to give, and I confess to you, every sermon I've ever heard on it is taught that way. To try and motivate people to increase their giving for the local church. Let me tell you two things. Number one, I don't care if you give it here, I'm not asking people to increase your offerings at the bridge. I'm saying give because of what it will do to your heart. And if there's somewhere else that the Lord instructs you to give, then you give it. This is about you and the Lord. This is about your heart. But here's the other thing to understand. Alistair Bakes says, and I agree with him, that to use this passage simply as an incentive for giving is to abuse this passage. You see... It's the old lie of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel that says if you give, if you dig deep, if you pour out, you'll be made rich. That's not the promise. That is not the guarantee. An abundance, yes. Blessing overflowing, yes. But it may not be financial. Could be arrows in your quiver. Children in the house, which all of you know is not a financial blessing. (laughs) Generous giving is not about getting more out of God. That's the prosperity gospel, and it is not right. It's not about getting more out of God, it's about bearing more fruit for God, which in turn produces thanksgiving to God to the praise of His glory in Jesus Christ. This passage, any prosperity, understand, any prosperity from the Lord is a means to an end. It is not the end in itself. The end is Christ. Always is. The end point is relationship with Jesus. That's what God is drawing us towards. So even in this tool of giving, which is just one of many tools the Lord uses to draw us into trusting relationship, the end is Jesus Christ. Watch this. Verse 11 continuing, he says, "...you'll be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God." For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, yeah, that's happening, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Translation, God is being praised by the faithfulness of His people. Verse 13, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all while they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you and then Paul brings this whole concept of getting home to the real point to the real issue he says thanks be to God for his his uh, okay how do, how do I say this um, wait for it his I got, I got this Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. I can't even come up with the word for it, is what Paul just wrote. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. And that gift is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Do you want to know Him more? Do you want to honestly, truly, with all your heart learn to trust Him more and walk in in blessed relationship with Jesus more? Well, here's one thing you can do. Give thankfully. Give thankfully. Not because you want to become a patron saint. (laughs) Rather because you're just praising God with many thanksgivings. As Jesus said in John 15.8, My Father is glorified by this that You bear much fruit and so prove to be My disciples. Let's just start with this, Father. You are good. There is none more gracious. There is none more bountiful. There is none who is ever even approached giving. How you gave and how you give. Lord, that, that you, you give whether people believe in you or not. That the, you cause the rain to fall and the sun to shine on believers and non-believers alike. That you pour out blessing upon blessing. Lord, we praise you because this is your nature. This is the very character of who you are. You are a generous, liberal, giving Father. You have blessed us beyond comprehension. You have given us more than we could possibly ask for or imagine. And so we praise Your name. And we are thankful, Lord. And as we go through this week, I pray this thankfulness will sit joyfully on our hearts. That, Father, truly, it will be heavy on our hearts, even as the meal on Thursday is heavy in our stomachs. That Thanksgiving will just be with us all week long. Because of who you are. And you so loved the world that you gave. Jesus. What a gracious God. We thank you. And Lord, we ask in response that we might be a people who are givers. That we might first, Lord, trust you and grow in relationship with you and honestly and truly believe that all sufficiency comes from our Father. And that secondly, Father, through that trust and through that deepening relationship, we might look like You. And people would really understand that we are God's children. That we are like our Father. And Father, I I pray that I I know the struggle. I've, I've... I spent years in the struggle. And I know there are those here this morning who struggle with giving anything because times are tight or or money is tight. I know there are those who give some but but want to increase it and don't know how. And I just pray, Father, I'm I'm not praying that we would all give more. Lord, but I am asking that Your Spirit would be poured out upon us and faith would come. In Jesus' name. Amen.